In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. C.S. Lewis once said that when it comes to the devil and things demonic, there are two equal but opposite errors into which a person may fall. The first error, he said, is to disbelieve in such things altogether, to regard the devil and demons as relics of a bygone and superstitious age. And the second error, he said, is to believe in such things, but to have an excessive or unhealthy interest in them a fascination with spells, magic, and the occult. Lewis says the devil delights in both of these errors, and he warmly welcomes both the materialist and the magician alike. Well, as we come to this morning's gospel lesson from Mark chapter 5, and what is certainly one of the most bizarre encounters on record from the time of our Lord's earthly ministry, I think that Lewis's advice about avoiding both of these errors is very important. In 21st century America, we have an abundance of both materialists and magicians. On the one hand, the rise of modern psychiatric medicine has made many people skeptical about such things as demonic oppression and possession. Today, it seems that every strange, destructive, and aberrant form of behavior gets conveniently classified as mental illness or derangement something that can be easily handled with medication or with therapy. And yet, on the other hand, the decline of religion in the West, and Christianity in particular, has given rise to a strange, some would even say bizarre, fascination, even obsession with all things spooky and supernatural. Mediums, aliens, psychics, And a whole genre of literature and films about ghosts and magical beings abound in pop culture today. G.K. Chesterton got it right. He said, when people stop believing in God, it's not as though they stop believing in anything. The problem, he said, is that they start believing in everything. One of the wonderful things about the Bible is that it does a very good job of steering a middle course between these two extremes. A middle course between these two errors. The New Testament acknowledges, yes, many of the illnesses and sicknesses that afflicted the people of Jesus' day were just that. They were illnesses. They were diseases. Things that we're very familiar with today, like blindness and deafness. And yes, many of the things that Jesus healed over the course of His earthly ministry were commonly occurring illnesses. Things like leprosy that we're very familiar with today. But while the Bible certainly acknowledges these naturally occurring illnesses, things that are common to all men and women, it also takes seriously the possibility of supernatural affliction. The Bible takes seriously the idea of a personified evil, a real devil. And the Bible takes seriously the possibility of demonic influence. And it is this latter, darker power, which no medication, no therapy can touch, that Jesus contends with here in today's lesson. The Gospel writer paints for us a dramatic and unforgettable scene. We're told that Jesus and His disciples had just endured a harrowing journey across the Sea 
of Galilee. Caught in a violent storm, their little craft had been battered, beaten, and nearly swamped by the waves. And now as they're tying up on the opposite shore, their legs still weak, their stomachs still queasy from the roiling of the sea, we're told that all of a sudden, out of the hills, there comes screaming at them this wild, naked, maniacal figure. Mark says that he was possessed of an unclean spirit, and no one could subdue him, not even with a chain. You know, over the course of his three-year ministry, Jesus would encounter all sorts and conditions of men and women. He would heal every manner of disease, both of the mind and of the body. But the Synoptics' Gospels make it very clear, never before and never again would Jesus ever encounter anyone quite like this man. He was the most despicable, the most foul, the most wretched creature imaginable. And it raises a serious question. What are we to do with a man like this? What are we to do with a story like this? What exactly does Jesus encounter with this tormented, demon-possessed man teach us? Enlightened, educated, 21st century people. Well, this morning I want us to note three things specifically. I think there are three lessons that we can glean. First, I want us to note and note very carefully this man's terrible condition. Look at how Mark describes him. He says he was possessed of an unclean spirit. Verse 3, and he lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one, no one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day, among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. Luke's version of the story adds that in addition to everything else, he refused to wear clothes. He would tear them off and go around naked. Probably a euphemism for some kind of sexual perversion. The folks round about the region referred to him as legion. Because that's exactly what his obscenities and his acts of violence were. They were legion. They were manifold. This fellow was a danger to others. He was violent and he was a danger to himself, always cutting himself with these stones. He was more animal than he was human. In fact, in some respects, he was even less than an animal. <laughs> because we know some animals can be subdued. They can be domesticated, but apparently that was not the case here. I suppose if there is one word to describe this man and his condition, that word would have to be alienated. This man was alienated. He was alienated from God in whose image he'd been made because of his wickedness. He was alienated from his friends and family who were appalled by his very existence, embarrassed by what he'd become. He was alienated from the rest of society because everybody lived in fear of his violent acts. And he was even alienated from himself. We're told that he was not in his right mind. He was mad. Is it any wonder that he lived among the tombs? In the eyes of most people, he was dead already. 
And to be frank, the dead were the only ones who could tolerate him. Oh yes, his was a terrible, terrible condition. And yet I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that it's not a wholly unfamiliar condition. You see, the New Testament actually teaches that you and I are not as different from this man as we might like to think. Oh, it's true, we may not be possessed of a demon per se, but the Scriptures are very clear, we all contend with dark powers. And I think that's the real reason why Matthew, Mark, and Luke include this story. It's because this man's is a dramatic representation, this man's life, of the debilitating, dehumanizing effects of sin. The sin that dwelled in him, yes, but the same sin that dwells in you and me. Now, I realize many people may find that to be offensive. Some people may find that statement repugnant. They'll say, don't tell me I'm as bad as this fellow. But I'm here to tell you this morning that that is the unanimous and what's more, the unambiguous witness of God's Word. Listen to how the Apostle Paul describes us in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, and as for you, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That is the devil. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, so that we were by nature children of wrath. That's how Paul describes us. He says something very similar in his letter to the Colossians. He said, and you, you were once alienated and hostile in your mind to God because of your evil deeds. It's that same language of alienation. We said that this man in Mark chapter 5 was alienated, alienated from God and everyone else because of his evil deeds. And yet that is precisely the same language that Paul uses to describe us. This man in Mark chapter 5 had no one who could help him. No one could subdue him, we're told. And to make matters worse, he could not subdue himself. He could not control his wild passions, his evil desires, his perverse thoughts. He was out of control. I'll be honest, can you relate to this man? Do you ever feel as though you can't control your thoughts, your desires, your passions? Do you ever feel as though you're out of control? The Apostle Paul could understand. Paul said, the very things I want to do, I do not do. And the very things I hate, these are the things I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Well, if you can't relate to this man, can you relate to Paul? I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that we can all relate to this man. If there's any difference between him and us, it is a difference of degree not a difference of kind. And that's the first thing that we need to note and note carefully. This man's terrible condition. His terrible condition. And ours. 
But here's the second thing we need to note. We need to note this carefully as well. And that is Jesus' great compassion for the lost and His mighty power to deliver. Today's lesson begins with these words, and on that day when evening had come, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go across to the other side. Matthew's version of the story indicates that Jesus was taking his disciples to the other side of the Sea of Galilee in order to escape the crowds. Those huge numbers of people that were always pressing in, thronging about, giving Jesus and the disciples no rest. You know, Christian ministry can be exhausting. It can be fulfilling, yes, but it can be exhausting. And it's exhausting because human need is never-ending. And sometimes even the most dedicated servants of the Lord need a break. They need an opportunity to get away, a respite, a chance to recharge their batteries. And apparently that's what the disciples thought they were going to get. They thought Jesus was taking them across the Sea of Galilee on a mini vacation. But let me tell you something, if Jesus was taking these men on a holiday, he was taking them to a very strange place indeed. Mark says Jesus led them to the region of the Decapolis. Now as that name suggests, the Decapolis was a circuit or league of ten cities. But the important thing to understand is that they were ten cities on the opposite bank of the Sea of Galilee. They were Gentile cities. This was pagan territory. This was a very strange place for Jesus to take his disciples, any self-respecting Jew, to go. Which should be a tip-off to us that perhaps there is something more in mind here than just a vacation. And that becomes especially clear when you read through the details of the story. For example, we're told that when Jesus and his disciples set off for the Decapolis, it was evening. Now, nighttime was a strange time to take a boat ride on the Sea of Galilee. The sea is 13 miles from north to south, 8 miles across at its widest point. There would have been very little light, no moon, no stars. We're told that a storm was brewing. This was potentially treacherous. And as we see, it turns out to be almost life-threatening. And when they finally do get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee... Having gone through this terrible storm, we're told that they came to the country of the Gerasenes. This was an eerie place. There are these huge limestone cliffs. They're still there today, towering above the shoreline. And in the first century, the people would carve out these caves in which they would place dead bodies. This was one vast burial ground. Now, Jews in the first century were not permitted to touch a dead body. It made them ritually unclean. Most Jews would avoid a cemetery or a graveyard altogether. And yet, here is Jesus leading his disciples into a pagan graveyard. And then on top of everything else, Mark mentions the fact that there were pigs. Ah, uh, one of the great burdens of living under the old covenant is that you could not have bacon with your eggs. 
Jews were not permitted to keep hogs. They were not permitted to eat hogs. They were ritually unclean animals. This is why Jesus' depiction of the prodigal son living among pigs and longing for the pods on which the pigs were feeding is such a dramatic representation of his fall from grace. But here we have Jesus leading his disciples into a pagan cemetery filled with swine. Folks, if that teaches us anything, it teaches us that Jesus was not taking these men on a holiday. He was taking them on a mission trip. How did the prophet Isaiah put it? The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. On those who sat in the shadow of death, the light has dawned. This was no chance encounter. This was no accidental meeting between Jesus and this tormented man. Jesus had crossed the Sea of Galilee for this very purpose. He had gone into this darkened, foul, polluted place for the very purpose of finding this man. You say, why would Jesus do such a thing? Jesus did it because he's the good shepherd. He's the good shepherd who seeks and saves the lost. He's the good shepherd who leaves the 99 in the fold and he goes in search of the one. Oh, it's true, this man was possessed of a demon, but apparently he was numbered among the elect. He may have been an unclean, uncircumcised Gentile, but apparently he was a sheep of Christ's own flock. He was polluted, Jesus had come to wash him. He was demented. Jesus had come to give him back his right mind. He was dead in his trespasses and in his sins. Jesus had come to raise him to the new life of grace. Verse 6. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For Jesus kept saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. There it is. That is the gospel, my friends. This really is what Christianity is all about. It is about God Almighty coming down into this wretched world, going into the foulest, the most polluted, the darkest of places, and finding the foulest, the most polluted, the darkest of people, and redeeming them. Oh, what an encouragement that should be to you and me. Because you see, it means that if Jesus Christ can save this fellow, Jesus Christ can save anyone. I know that some of you have loved ones. Some of you have children who are not walking with the Lord. They're either indifferent or they're in complete rebellion against all things godly. And you despair for their very salvation. Well, don't despair. Keep hoping, keep praying, because if Jesus can save this man, He can save your son or your daughter. Some of you are burdened by a weight of guilt you look back over the course of your life and you can relate to this man. You know you've done some terrible, foul things. Other people don't know about it. Maybe you've wronged someone. And there's no way to atone for it. That person has died. And you feel burdened. Don't give up hope. Come to Jesus Christ. If He can save this man, He can save you too. 
I love the picture of this man after Jesus casts out the demons. We're told that the word about this spread throughout the country, and everybody came out to see what had happened, and they found this man, this man that no one could subdue, not even with a chain, sitting there at Jesus' feet, clothed and in his right mind. That's what Jesus Christ comes to do. What he came to do for this man, he comes to do for you and for me. We say it every Sunday, and here is a true saying, and worthy of all men to be received, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He came to save from the guttermost to the uttermost. He comes to wash us with His most precious blood. He comes to clothe us with His righteousness. He comes to take our demented, disordered thoughts and give us a right mind. He comes to set us on the solid ground. And alienated though we are, He comes to bring us home. And that's the second thing we need to note, and we need to note it carefully. It is Jesus' great love for the lost and His mighty power to save. The old hymn got it right. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity. Love and power. But there's a third thing that we need to note. And it's just as important as the other two points. I want us to note the reaction of this man once he'd been cleansed. Unfortunately, not everybody in the neighborhood was thrilled with his newfound salvation. Not everybody was delighted that this man had been healed. Why? Well, because apparently in healing this man, Jesus had destroyed some very valuable livestock. 2,000 pigs, to be precise. And everybody wants to know, why did he destroy the pigs? It's always astounding to me that everybody wants to know about the pigs. Oh, those poor pigs. Couldn't Jesus have cleansed this man without destroying the pigs? Well, perhaps. But then again, perhaps not. See, Jesus didn't want there to be any doubt whatsoever that this man had really been saved. He didn't want the man to doubt. And furthermore, he didn't want anybody else in that region to doubt either. To doubt the fact that light was now shining in this gloomy land. To doubt the fact that salvation had come even to this darkest of places. Jesus knew that proof was required. And let's face it, the sight of 2,000 squealing pigs hurling themselves off a cliff into the turbulent waters and drowning, well, that would be pretty powerful proof. Nobody was ever going to forget that. The man would never forget it. The people would never forget it. Nobody would ever forget the fact that Jesus came and Jesus saves. Now, if there's any tragedy at all in this story, the tragedy is that these people were more concerned with the economy than they were with this man's salvation. They were more concerned with pigs than they were with people. And let's be honest, isn't that often the way it is? 
Aren't we often more concerned with our own comfort, our own convenience, than we are for those who are just outside our walls who are perishing for want of a relationship with God? But my friends, it's never that way with Jesus. Jesus is always more concerned with people than anything else. And that is why this story ends the way it does. We're told that Jesus and his disciples took the civic leader's request to heart. We're told that they were so upset about this, they came and they begged Jesus to leave the region. And so he got into the boat and he was leaving. But again, his mission was already accomplished. But he's getting into the boat and he's leaving. But the man who had been possessed but it was now cleansed came up to him. And he begged Jesus, take me with you. For the first time in his life, he could see things clearly. For the first time in his life, he was thinking clearly. And the only thing he wanted to do was to give his new life in service to the Master. And yet that's the very reason why Jesus did not take him along. Jesus said, no, You cannot come with me. Instead, I want you to go home. Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you. How He has had mercy on you. Mark says, He went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone marveled. Is everyone marveling at you? See, if you claim to be a Christian this morning, and I say claim because the fact is you can be churched and not converted. But if you really are a Christian, what you're saying is that you can relate to this man. You're saying that your story really is not all that different from his. You were once bound in sin and nature's night. You could not control your passions, your evil desires, your thoughts. But Jesus Christ, who is rich in mercy, came into your darkness. And He redeemed you at the cost of His very own life. He took your disordered thoughts and gave you a right mind. He cleansed you. He clothed you. If you're a Christian, what you're saying is that you, like this man, have a story to tell. Are you telling it? Are you telling your story? If not, then I want you to hear Jesus' words again. He says to you, go home. Leave this place. Go home to your friends and to your family, to your husband, to your wife, to your children. Go home to your neighbors and your co-workers. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you. How He has had mercy on you. Amazing grace How sweet the sound 
saved a wretch like me. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise for this story. It is bizarre to our modern ears. It seems so foreign to us, and yet when we look deep within, it is our story. We are this man, and we are as in desperate straits as he was in. We need your salvation. We give you thanks that Jesus Christ let go of the glories of heaven and came down into this darkened, dying, miserable world to bring us home. Lost sheep that we are. Grant us the grace, the courage, the wherewithal to go out and share the good news of what God has done for us. That those on the outside may marvel at your salvation. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.